Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Welcome back to At Your Service. Brad Young in with you for another hour. Hey, thanks for sticking around with us this evening. It's always, always great to talk to you. And uh, we got had some great callers this past hour. And we also had a lot of texts. And I didn't get a chance to get to the texts because of the, of the calls we had. But a, a lot of you texted in about your favorite Clint Eastwood movies. Thank you. A lot of you texted in your favorite Ted Drews, which included uh, Cardinal Sin. And it's really funny. Uh, one person texted in and said, this is my favorite duo, Ted Drew's Cardinal Sin, watching Clint Eastwood Pale Rider. So thank you very much for that. But one text really did make me laugh, and it was this. This is the entire text. Clint Eastwood movies, three words, paint your wagon. Now, if, you, if you've ever seen Paint Your Wagon, you're laughing right now. Uh, because Paint Your Wagon is a musical Clint Eastwood was in a musical. And and let me tell you, I have enjoyed watching Paint Your Wagon many times, but not for the reason you think. I enjoyed Paint Your Wagon because Clint Eastwood is such a terrible singer that it's it's funny to watch him try to sing. And Lee Marvin is in it. He can't sing. And I'm just wondering who thought it was a good idea to put Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood in a musical where they sing. I'm not really sure what the thinking was there, but it is entertaining. If you like to watch people do badly on screen, then Paint Your Wagon is it. It takes place in Alaska. It's during the gold rush, and there aren't many women and lots of guys. And anyway, uh, Paint Your Wagon, very funny. But your text made me laugh when you said three words, Paint Your Wagon. Hey, there's a lot of stuff going on in the news today. Coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk about the debt deal that was just voted on in the House, and we're going to talk about what happens next. But this is what we call Supreme Court season because all of the decisions, all of the cases that you've heard about, most of the awards are going to be coming out, or decisions from the Supreme Court are going to be coming out over the next two weeks. And, of course, the, the Dobbs decision came out a while back. But the, the other major decisions this term in front of the Supreme Court, and I'm going to go through some of those with you uh, later in the show. But one of the cases that everyone on the Supreme Court could agree on, and that was this case where a 94-year-old woman in Minneapolis, she owed taxes. And actually, actually her taxes to... The city of Minneapolis amounted to $2,300. And in order to, to get those taxes, to collect those taxes, the city of Minneapolis 
decided, which was in compliance with Minnesota law, to literally take her house. She owed $2,300. They tacked on $13,000 in penalties, in interest, and in fees, which brought the total to $15,000. Now, the house that she had, I think it was a condo, actually. The condo was worth $40,000. So what did the city of Minneapolis do? What did the county do? Well, they foreclosed on her house, kicked out a 95-year-old woman out of her house that she had owned for almost 25 years. And then they sold the house for $40,000. Now, I'm no math genius, okay? But if, if you owe $15,000 in taxes and you sell the house for 40000 that means there's a remaining balance of $25,000. What do you think the county did where Minneapolis is in Minnesota? What do you think they did? They kept all of the money, depriving a 95-year-old woman of the value, the equity that she had in her home. Now, what's interesting is there's a there's the takings clause in the Constitution that says the government cannot take your property without just compensation. Well, if there's any, any situation that screams taking, it's stealing, literally stealing your house. And instead of just keeping the 15 grand that's owed, and we could argue about whether or not that was even legitimate. It was really $2,300 in taxes. But to, to sell her house and then keep all 40000 when only 15000 was owed, folks, that's called theft. And what's interesting is, is they're not unique. Minnesota isn't the only state that allows this. Alabama, Arizona, Colorado, Illinois allows that. Of course, that doesn't surprise me and probably doesn't surprise you. Maine. Massachusetts, we've already talked about Minnesota, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, South Dakota, District of Columbia. All of those states say if the state seizes your house for taxes and sells it, they get to keep the whole thing. So if you owe $5,000 in taxes and your house is worth $200,000, they get to keep a $195,000 profit because you owe taxes. Folks, that's outrageous. And that case went to the Supreme Court, and thankfully the Supreme Court ruled. In fact, they ruled in favor of the 95-year-old woman, sent the case back down to the lower courts to pay her what she is owed and should have received once the tax balance was paid. But in writing for the court, Chief Justice John Roberts said, the taxpayer must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but no more than that. And he is exactly right. And coming up uh, before the show's over, I'm going to preview some of the other decisions that we're going to hear from the Supreme Court over the next two weeks. But coming up next, right after the break, we're going to talk about the, the debt ceiling bill that the House just voted on. And we're going to talk to political strategist Raven Harrison on At Your Service on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. 
Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to At Your Service. Brad Young in with you this evening. And the debt ceiling deal was just passed uh, by the House of Representatives about 45 minutes ago. And now it's heading to the Senate for a vote there, hopefully before the June 5 default deadline. But the question is, is this a good deal or is it a bad deal or is it something in between? So to break this down, I reached out to uh, Raven Harrison. You've heard her here several times before. She's a Texas-born political strategist, former congressional candidate, daughter of two United States Air Force, retired lieutenant colonels, business owner, mother, host of a podcast, Raven's Radar, author. Uh, Basically, uh, she's got the longest resume in the Western Hemisphere, uh, and that's Raven Harrison. Hey, Raven, welcome back to KMOX St. Louis. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I, I wanted to reach out to you because I could not think of anyone uh, better than you to talk to about this this particular deal because earlier in the year year Republicans called for a total discriminatory uh, discre- uh, discretionary spending uh, basically yeah. to go back to fiscal twenty two levels. This bill doesn't do that. Uh, what are your thoughts on this bill? Correct. Um, I would say that the, it's best summarized when you say that Democrats and Republicans are unhappy. <laughs> That's a pretty good indication of what this deal is. It is a horrible deal. It's not a deal at all. It's a cave. So basically what Republicans were supposed to be fighting for was, you know, fiscal responsibility. That is Congress's number one job is to pass a balanced budget, and they have not done that since 96. So we need to get some cuts in there. The Democrats are saying we want to spend without any cuts, and which is not sustainable. So what this looks like in terms of the picture is we currently have $31 trillion. This new plan will add up to, I think, up to $50 trillion over the next 10 years. Um, $31 trillion equates to $1 trillion in interest that we are responsible for right now. Um, we have several sanctuary cities declaring states of emergency at asking for billions of dollars in aid for the seven to nine million, you know, immigrants that have come in to the country. So this is going to be an epic disaster. Um, they're trying to spend their way out of debt. And we're, we're talking to uh, political strategist Raven Harrison. And Raven, one of the things about this that I literally could not wrap my head around was uh, the the analysis was that there's 30 billion dollars in COVID money that our government still hasn't spent. The president has stated the COVID emergency is now over. And when Republicans tried to claw back that 30 billion, they were only able to claw back 28 billion. Now, to me, I don't understand why this should even be uh, an issue. If you don't spend the money, don't spend the money. I mean, that's the way it works in your household. That's the way it works in my household. But but, yes. but this bill couldn't even get money that wasn't spent clawed back. And what you're seeing is that this is the epitome of political circus. It is not 
about an R or a D. I think the first thing that has to happen is people have to, we have to change the verbiage. We keep saying government funded. There is no such Hmm. thing as government funded. Government has no money. That is taxpayer money. So when you look at it from that perspective, that is we the people's money. So it it was never, it shouldn't have never been an option. But this is how politicians do is, you know, the Democrats steamroll and Republicans roll over. And that's what happens. This is what you're seeing is this is not good. And what they're, they're trying to do is they're trying to leverage. They're saying, well, we can't default. We could default anyway. Sure. Brad, we could default because of the amount of debt. You know, look at it, a normal credit card. If you raise the limit and then max it out and raise the limit and max it out, you're going to get to the point where the bank is going to say, hey, we got to cut you off. You're going to have to pay this back. And we are dangerously close to that level. So we could default either way. So we've got to get this spending under control. And even 2022 was not a good spending. That was still post-pandemic spending where we're paying people not to go to work. So we need to get the spending back to we just need to be able to live within our budget like every household in America is expected to do. Excellent point. We're talking to political strategist Raven Harrison and and Raven, while the Congressional Budget Office and I looked this up today, they're claiming the two year caps included in this deal would reduce discretionary spending by one point three trillion. When I looked at those numbers, Raven, almost all of that wasn't really cuts. It was reductions in growth. And th- Correct. And this is a, isn't this just a, a Washington trick where if you reduce the growth in spending, you call it a cut, even though it's still really an increase? Correct. You know, you could, you know, it, it's whether I want to call a burglar, you know, an art aficionado, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it, it's tomato, tomato. But yes, it is just a more clever way of saying that we are not going to be responsible. And I mean, if you look at how they have laid this out, I mean, all of this. So they have per- specifically said we are going to the two year cap goes right into the presidential election cycle. So this is all by design. This is like once again, they have fought for, but this isn't really an R or a D. This is a we have to be financially responsible. We have given, you know, over forty-seven billion dollars in aid to Ukraine. They they were not honest that we were even in a war. So we're funding a war. Okay, we are. You, we've shut down our oil. They've opened one pipeline. They're saying, okay, we'll open one pipeline, and that's in Joe Manchin's district. So Democrat, give him and his people a little bit of oil. The rest of us stay shut down, and we keep borrowing from Russia, who we're attempting to sanction and fighting a war against. It is the epitome of nonsense. Send a billion to the border, but you can't use it to deport people. you got to use it to process and give them more cell phones. Uh, there were so, really only two... Yeah, Raven, there were really only two parts of this bill that I thought were moderately okay, which is certainly not a ringing endorsement. Uh, right. two, two things that I saw that were at least an improvement from where we are. And the first is, is there's a reduction in the bureaucracy when it deals with environmental issues. There's limits on the paperwork and the time that's required for environmental reviews. Uh, But I guess my question is, is uh, overreaching environmental regulations, doesn't that in this country punish both companies and individuals? It does. And you are correct. On the surface, that would be an excellent thing to reduce the tape, to reduce the size of the government. But then you look at 
Joe Biden just reduced, just um, released his payroll. It is the largest we have ever seen, a hundred million dollars yeah, by far for him to expand government and roles. So that would negate. How are you going to get less re- regulation by increasing the size of government? It's not possible. No, because it's a truism. Ronald Reagan said this many times, that the larger government gets, the smaller our freedoms become. And you just articulated a perfect example of that, because when you have this explosive growth in government, we're the ones that have to pay for that. We absolutely do. And then look at it from a deeper level of, you know, Joe Biden has uh, you know, serially said, hey, we got to get rid of assault weapons, but he's armed the IRS. So you're saying that normal law-abiding citizens shouldn't have a gun, but people who collect your taxes should? Yeah, and that's a scary proposition because someone who has a gun who's demanding money from you, uh, that's called a robbery. Correct, and that's exactly what it is. Uh, And that's, you know, and, and it's telling that more Democrats voted for this than Republicans. I mean, it just shows that we've got a uniparty. At work, and that's what people feared. But it just—it's a—it's a rally cry for people who are listening. And I encourage your listeners get involved. Light up those phone lines. You have to—they're going to be looking for money in a, in a few months when the election comes around. This is when you got to hold them to task. This is when it matters. Hmm. You're exactly right. And Raven, I know that you're a former congressional candidate. Uh, yes. you, you've got an extremely lengthy resume, but you're also the podcast. You're the host of the podcast Ravens Radar, and you're also consulting with uh, with candidates who are running for office. If people want more information yes. about what you do and the message that you present loudly, forcefully, and strongly, where can people find you? They can find me at uh, ravenharrison.com. That's our website and information about the podcast, the pack. Raven Pack that we use to fund different candidates. And they can find me on all social media as Raven the Conservative Warrior, which is Raven underscore TX Warrior. But I also want to say anybody, I welcome dialogue, Democrats, Republican, because it's, I'm a conservative. That works for me. Uh, and I outline this in my book, Raven's Mantle. But I tell people that I'm fighting for your right to disagree with me for those. We, we got to find a way to move forward together. We can't let them divide us. So just tell people I welcome the conversation, the discussion, and uh, making sure we, we get as many people happy as possible. Very good. Raven Harrison, hey, thank you so much for joining us here this evening on KMOX St. Louis. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. Hey, I want to open those phone lines back up now and ask you, do you care about this debt ceiling smackdown? What are your thoughts on how our country moves forward? Because this is probably going to pass in the Senate. Uh, What are your thoughts? Should it pass? Was this a good deal for us as a country? Or is this just more of the same from Washington politicians? 314-436-7900. Call or text. Would love to hear from you this evening here on At Your Service. KMOX. Friend of the show, Mary Lynn, texted in this evening and she said, the liberals must stop spending money the U.S. does not have to spend. That's insanity. You know, Mary Lynn, it is. And one of the definitions of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And yet, isn't that exactly what we have from our politicians in Washington? 
And I, and I asked this question of uh, Raven Harrison, but I wanted to expand on it a little bit because there's something called zero-based budgeting. What does that mean? That's a fancy Washington, D.C. term that means the following. Zero-based budgeting means that every year we build in something above zero in terms of anticipated growth. So all of the budgeting that goes on in Washington, it works like this. Let's say, for example, you're the Department of Sprockets. Okay, (laughs) made that up, but Department of Sprockets. And they anticipate that next year the Department of Sprockets wants to spend an additional 5% over their budget this past year. They want a 5% increase. So if Congress comes in and says, well, we're only going to allow you, Department of Sprockets, to increase your spending by 3% instead of 5%, now what happens is that the politicians, Democrat and Republican, they all do the same game. They come in and they say, look, we sat down with the Department of Sprockets and we cut their budget by 2%. We cut 2% of the spending out of the Department of Sprockets. No, you didn't. What you did was you allowed them to increase spending by 3% instead of the planned increase of 5%. So reducing it from a 5% increase to a 3% increase isn't a 2% cut. It's still a 3% increase. Okay, but no, 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 not in Washington. That is the Washington speak for how budgeting occurs. Zero-based budgeting. And it's 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 outrageous. And that's the that's the atmosphere that we're currently in right now. Now, if, if I were in Congress, would I have voted for this debt ceiling bill? I probably would have, because at this point, it's like if someone puts a gun to your head and says, uh, you know, give me your wallet. You say, well, OK, I got a gun to my head. I don't really have a choice because the downside of allowing our government to go into default was akin to having a gun to your head. So because they wait to the last minute, and folks, don't be surprised, this was by design. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't just a a lack of planning. This was by design. Because when you put the bill in front of Congress, literally within days of the government going on a default, when that happens, you have no choice but to vote for it. And to me, that is a, a not a not it's not a choice that you're making willingly. It's a choice that you're making to stay alive. And that is certainly uh, that's the only way this bill would have gotten through Congress. So it goes on to the Senate. It'll probably ha- it probably pass. <clears throat> and then we'll go on our merry way, overspending, overspending, overspending without living within our means. Now, one of the things I want to make sure I get to this segment is the Supreme Court. I follow the Supreme Court very, very closely. And to me, I don't use this as an opportunity like I would in a law class to discuss it, breaking down all of the legal issues. But to me, it's about policy. It's about ideas. It's the marketplace of ideas. And there are three cases at the Supreme Court right now that we're waiting on decisions and we should have them within the next two weeks. And there's, I'm just going to mention three. There's going to be a bunch, but there's three big ones. The one I've been looking at most, 
is it's called Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and University of North Carolina. If you don't remember this case, here's the back here's the backstory. With regard to Harvard and University of North Carolina, they have a racial admissions policy based on race. So if they look at their admissions and say, we want to have more of one type of race coming to this college, then by definition, they have to exclude others. So Students for Fair Admissions are a group of Asian students who were not allowed to get into Harvard and were not allowed to get into University of North Carolina. Their grades were more than good enough. They had all of the resumes necessary to get into Harvard and UNC, but they weren't allowed. Why? Because they were Asians, because they were Asian Americans. And Harvard and University of North Carolina said, we have enough Asians, so we're going to exclude you from being allowed to come to this university because we want more X, whatever X may be in terms of racial minorities. So they sued. And what's interesting is, is that uh, I quoted Chief Justice uh, John Roberts earlier this evening, but in a prior case where this came up before the Supreme Court, he made a very interesting analysis. He said, if you want to stop discriminating on the basis of race, then stop discriminating on the basis of race, because that's what admissions policies do. They discriminate based on race. Now, keep in mind, discrimination in, a, in the general sense of the word, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, hear me out. If you are a wine connoisseur, you have a discriminating palate. That means you don't buy bottles of Tickle Pink and Blue Nun. Why? Because your discriminating palate says Blue Nun and Tickle Pink are not good wines. So in that context, discriminating is good. But in, in, the, in the area of racial discrimination for admissions, colleges have the same concept. They say, you know what, you are, you're an Asian-American. We don't like you because we have too many Asians already, so we're going to exclude you. In that context, it's not good. In that context, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not going to use the word evil, but it's wrong because our society says discriminating against someone based upon nothing more than race is illegal, it's immoral, and it's unethical. And yet that's exactly what universities have been doing for decades and decades and decades. Let me give you another example. I've given this example before, but the American Bar Association has just came out last year with a policy that says, and they're, and they're going to implement it perhaps next year. Right now it's a policy suggestion. It's not a rule. But the policy suggestion is that a university, a law school, will not be admitted and allowed to be ABA accredited. You have to be ABA accredited in order to sit for the bar exam after you graduate law school. You will not be ABA accredited if your faculty does not match the community in terms of racial balancing. Now, that sounds very nice, and it sounds very noble. But here's the reality of it. When I went to law school... 30% of my professors were Jewish. And I, and I came up with that number based upon national statistics. But about 30% of my professors were Jewish. But according to those same national statistics, only about 1% to 2% of Americans are Jewish. So does that mean I have to go 
if, if I'm the American Bar Association, I have to go to professors at law schools and say, I'm sorry, professor, you're Jewish, we have to fire you. Because there's 30% of the faculty is Jewish, only 2% in our community is Jewish, therefore we have too many Jewish professors, I'm sorry, professor, you're fired. On what planet is that fair? In what country is that ethical? And yet that's the position of the American Bar Association. That's the part about admissions that the left doesn't get. The desire to increase racial minorities at college is a fantastic goal. But you don't reach that goal by discriminating against someone else and excluding someone else based upon their race. That is not how you achieve a laudable goal by discriminating against someone else. So the Supreme Court's going to come out with that decision. I'm predicting the Supreme Court will rule probably six to three uh, that these admission policies are wrong and they should be struck down, that universities will not be able to determine admissions based upon race. That decision should come out in two weeks. Listen, handicap me. I don't mind. Keep track. If I'm wrong, feel free to email me, beyoung at harristell.com. Would love to hear from you. The other case is called 303 Creative versus Alanis. What is that case? Well, it's a free speech case. And as I tell you about this, you're going to say, hey, this sounds really familiar. But here's the fact pattern. There was a, uh, there was a cake baker who, uh, who did, I'm, I'm sorry, a photographer and a web design company who designed and designs uh, web pages and products for weddings. And so these folks are Christians, and some gays came to them to get married and said, we want you to do our wedding photos and our website design. Now, this was a setup from the get-go because they knew this company was Christian-based. And so they said, I'm sorry, we're not going to do that. We'll, we'll give you one of our prepackaged web designs, but we're not going to custom make a web page just for you because that violates our faith. And they sued. And now this was in Colorado, the same place that the cake baker that was decided several years ago who didn't want to design custom-made cakes for gay weddings. This is the exact same issue. But the left keeps pushing this issue, and now it's coming back up to the Supreme Court. And, of course, the, the left says, well, you're discriminating against homosexuals. No, they're not. They're not discriminating. They're saying, we will give you these services. We have a prepackaged plan. We're not denying you services. Here you go. But what the left doesn't understand is this idea of freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. Because if the Supreme Court were to rule against this web designer and photographer company, basically what they're saying is, is that the government can force you to speak the government can force you by the power of the government to speak these words and to perform these services. Now, the last time I checked, if you're forcing someone to perform services against their will, that's called slavery. It could at least be called indentured servitude. And yet that's what the left is calling for by forcing companies to speak. So that decision will come out. I'm guessing that will be probably a five to four decision, and that decision will be in favor of the
the Christian website design companies because this court has in the past and should continue to uphold the First Amendment freedom of speech. The last case that I've been following closely is the debt relief case where President Biden, with the stroke of a pen, not something that was authorized by Congress, not something that was legislated by Congress, but simply because President Biden wanted to do it, he eliminated billions of dollars of student debt. And and that's been challenged right here in Missouri uh, by what's something called MOHILA, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Association. So this case is going up to the Supreme Court. There are several tricky issues here regarding something called standing, whether or not a, a company or a, a, a state has a pony in the race. They have skin in the game. That's one of the issues here. But the broader issue is whether the president has the authority to unilaterally eliminate debt to do things that are financial, which under our Constitution is the exclusive power in Congress, power of the purse, whether the president can just create that power out of thin air and wipe off hundreds of billions of dollars of debt that's owed to the U.S. government just because he wants to, just because he's trying to get reelected, just because he's pandering to college students to vote for him. And the court will reach one of two decisions. Either A, they'll send that case back down to resolve this issue called standing, and B, if they reach the broader issues here, they're going to rule that the president does not have that authority. So those are the three cases uh, that we'll be seeing here in the next couple of weeks. Do you have any thoughts on those? What should the government do? Should the president be able to just wipe out debt just because he feels like it, even though Congress never authorized it? You know, listen, I was in high school a long time ago, but even there, we learned about the separation of powers. Congress, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. But now the president, who's the head of the executive branch, is trying to act like the judicial branch. That's unconstitutional. 314-436-7900. What do you think? Whether you agree with me or not, listen, if you disagree with me, you go to the front of the line. I mean, that's, that's how it works, folks, because I love the marketplace of ideas, which is exactly what At Your Service is. Hey, we'll be right back. KMOX. Welcome back to At Your Service. Brad Young in. Hey, this is the last segment here tonight. Thanks for sticking around with us and discussing all of the ideas that 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 are prevalent and that need to be discussed, including the best Clint Eastwood movies. You know, that that is the burning topic of the day, and I'm certainly glad uh, that we covered it. One of the issues that Megan Lynch has been covering is, uh, if you've heard some of her pieces in the morning, is talking about AI, artificial intelligence. And one of the issues, and I'm just highlighting this for you now, so as you see this issue develop, you can, you can say, hey, I heard it here first on KMOX. And that is the legal impl- implications of, of artificial intelligence. Can computers have a copyright? Can they have a trademark? Who owns content? Have you ever seen? There's some amazing content out there where people take uh, an artificial intelligence program 
and they say paint a painting in the style of Georgia O'Keeffe. I'm just using her as an example because I saw this. And Georgia O'Keeffe is a very famous, amazingly talented painter from uh, Southwest. I think it's in Arizona or New Mexico area. New Mexico, I believe. And so these AI programs create amazing paintings that are that look like Georgia O'Keeffe did it, but she died a long time ago. But there's stuff that's current, but in the same style as Georgia O'Keeffe. Who owns the copyright to that? Who owns that work? And these are all issues that have to be resolved in the legal realm because the dirty little secret about the legal profession, and there are a lot of them, I'll tell you, but one of them is is that the legal world moves much more slowly than the real world. So as you see technology, gadgets, apps, what have you, develop, those things develop far faster than the law can adapt to manage it. In fact, it's enormously slower. So the question is going to be coming here over the next several years, who owns the copyright? And to understand that, there's two ideas that I need to share with you in our remaining minutes. The first is the Copyright Office has routinely held that only humans can have a copyright. And this case is famously uh, depicted by... And I remember when this happened, I think it was 2016, maybe it was 2017. Somebody had, uh, I say a monkey, but it's really an ape that had big teeth. And the ape took a selfie of it smiling. And the ape was holding the camera and took a picture of itself, grinning a big toothy grin. And it was fun. It's funny. You look at it and you laugh. You cannot help but laugh. But the question is, who owns that picture? Who owns the picture? Well, the the ape took the picture, but the courts ruled that non-humans can't be copyright holders. So the ape didn't own the copyright. Well, the reason this came up is because the owner of the camera that was used to take the picture said, hey, I own the copyright because if the ape can't own it, then I own it. Court said no to that, too, because the court said, look, dude, you didn't take the picture. Owning the camera isn't the same as taking the picture. you got to take the picture to own the copyright. So it was considered to be public domain. Nobody owned it. So I just wanted to be in the room when black-robed justices who are serious about everything were arguing about whether a monkey taking a selfie, who owns the copyright? I wanted to be in the room for that, Uh, but I wasn't. But it raises this issue then if AI, if artificial intelligence creates something, who owns it? We don't know. The second issue is, if you've ever played around with chat GPT or any other type of AI, you can tell it to say, write a short story of 500 words about Captain Picard and Captain Kirk going on vacation in the Bahamas. And then poof, it writes a story. Who owns the story? Well, nobody does because of the way artificial intelligence works. That software, that algorithm, isn't drafting that from scratch. It's looking out on the Internet, reading about the Bahamas, reading about Captain Kirk, reading about who Captain Picard is, and then it crafts the story based upon what other people have written on the Internet. So in that point, it's not truly original because it's really an amalgamation 
of information that the software found online. So in that respect, again, the computer doesn't own or the software doesn't own the copyright because it's not original. It's stuff that the computer read online and then changed to be part of the story to comply with your request to write a 500-word short story. So when you put those two ideas together, number one, it's a non-human. Number two, it's not truly an original work, but is really a copy of something else that somebody else has already done. You put those two ideas together and the courts say, hey, software program, you don't own the pro- you don't own the copyright. Hey, owner of the software program, you don't own the copyright, just like the owner of the camera doesn't own the copyright when the monkey took a selfie. It's the same idea with AI. And I know you're saying, well, how can it be the same idea between AI and a monkey taking a picture of itself? But it truly is. It's the same idea. So as this moves forward through the courts, and as we see more and more AI stuff in the news, think about the legal ramifications, who owns the copyright, because at the end of the day, folks, it's always, always, always a fight about money, just like we saw in Washington, D.C. over the past two months. Hey, Brad Young in tonight for At Your Service. Uh, Because of Cardinal Baseball, I may not be on for a while, but I'm hoping to be on with you soon. Stick around because coming up next at 10 o'clock, it's the best of the Dave Glover Show. Catch it right here on Camo X after Sean Michael Lyle and the news at 10 o'clock on The Voice of St. Louis. Camo X. 